Welcome, everybody. This is Single-Minded Conversations. I am Jesse Single. I'm a uh, journalist and podcaster. Uh, I'm really excited for today's show. It marks sort of the first time I've had a full-blown guest joining for the entire session of one of these. Just want to do some quick housekeeping first, though. If you're new to the show, you might want to check out two of my uh, first batch of episodes in particular, one of which I recorded, uh, actually both of which I recorded over the weekend. In one, I talked about some of the pitfalls of adopting heterodox or other similar labels as part of one's identity as a, a writer or thinker. In another one, I talked about some important news on the youth gender dysphoria front and got a bit into the debate over whether or not it's important to give kids and adolescents comprehensive in-depth mental health evaluations before referring them to puberty blockers and hormones. So you can buy, find both of those in the Single-Minded Conversation show feed. You can listen to them whether or not you have a, um, an iPhone. Uh, iPhone for now is required to participate live in these rooms. Let's check on um, Alice's progress. Great, she's here. Uh, I'm just trying to invite her up so I can... Um, have her ready for this to begin. Sorry, guys, one sec. Still new technology. There we go. Invite to speak. Alice, I'm going to immediately mute you. Silencing. There we go. All right, keep yourself muted while I do the intro, just so there's no extra noise. But um, we'll get to Alice very soon. Okay, last other thing is one upcoming room you might want to put on your calendar is uh, December 14th at 6 p.m. Eastern. I'll be talking to Batya Ungar Sargon about how journalism became a field for rich kids uh, and why it matters. Um, I'll have to have some self-awareness while I do that one. That's December 14th at 6 p.m. Eastern. Finally, a request. Uh, I want to use this platform in part to interview interesting people who are not already mainstays on other podcasts. I think there's a group of us who sort of go on each other's shows and we tend to recycle guests because that's easier. I'd like to try to move beyond that with this platform. So beyond that basic criterion of people being more interesting, I'm really open to any guest suggestions. So I'd really encourage you to feel free to message me out here or send me an email if you have any suggestions of uh, sort of, you know, off the beaten path guests who might be good to talk to for 30 or 60 minutes. Okay, that out of the way, I am very pleased to bring you Alice Gribben, and I'm grateful she's joining us today. She's a poet, and as of recently an essayist, she was born, raised, and educated in uh, England, which I have never heard of, to be honest, and she currently lives in Northern California. Her writing on literature, visual art, and aesthetics can be read at alicegribben.substack.com. I will include a link in the show notes if I haven't already. Alice, as I try to unmute yourself, I don't really know how this technology works. Hello, can you hear me? Hello, I can. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What, let's kick things off by having you read just a, a quick excerpt from the essay, and then we will talk for a bit, and then we'll take any questions listeners have. Great. Um, yeah, I've, I've chosen a more fiery paragraph from the essay. Um, the whole thing isn't a tirade like this. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I am. It's just so mad at the world. Um, right, so so here we go. This comes later in the essay after I've already um, made a lot of my points and provided uh, evidence to back them up. Um, no doubt those institutions, arts institutions, premised on building a, quote, just and harmonious society, end quote, are promoting art on the basis not of its being aesthetically good, but of its making audiences into good people. To the empaths, powerful art is benevolently humanitarian. The artist's role is that of social worker and saint. In reality, empathic artists are frequently hectoring. 
2019 poetry anthology, What Saves Us, Poems of Empathy and Outrage in the Age of Trump, calls on readers to quote, imagine the world we will leave behind in ruins, lest we speak and act, end quote. Engaging those poems, apparently, is our civil responsibility. It is no coincidence that artists who believe art should serve a function in society, the utilitarians, make works that are typically conformist, generic, and didactic. By fiat, they deny the imagination its mystery and irreverence. But the imagination, like the impact of any artwork, cannot be managed. The empathy discourse parades as a form of engagement in concrete social realities. In truth, it enforces predetermined categories on what is by nature dispersive and wild. Meaning for the empath is not explosive, but aggressively limited. Empathy is a downer. It's high, dulls the faculties rather than stimulates. Empathy domesticates, sanitizes, bleaches. The aligning of art with empathy signifies just how incapable of regarding and fairly representing art the literary and visual art worlds have become. Thank you so much. And, and I would just encourage everyone to read it. The, the writing throughout is as, as good as that. Um, as you read it, uh, well, when you, when you sent me that excerpt beforehand, that mention of, of Trump, like these are the poems you need to read in an age of Trump. First of all, that's a bit of marketing genius, like to produce content and be like, in our political era, how can you afford to not listen to my podcast? I'm, I'm going to try to do that. Do you think Trump, the election of Trump and his effect on liberal institutions, not to get too political, but do you think that did mark a turning point toward this idea that we need to have very explicit types of messages, often political, in art? Yeah, I think it clearly did. Um, though these trends go back further, um, I think what I, in this essay and, and other writing I'm working on, um, refer to and in this passage too as as utilitarian um kind of approaches to art and expectations for for art and why art is important um and by utilitarian i mean um you know not just uh that art should make us more empathic but that art should be political that it should uh you know be therapeutic that it should serve religious or moral function and in this instance um maybe less to you know maybe less to do with empathy and more to do with politics um that that we should read poems because the world is um in danger and uh poems can help us save the world uh, quite literally is what the um the promotional material of this book is uh, says um yeah clearly the the things took a, a, a sharper turn uh, towards utilitarianism across the arts it's not just in the literary arts but i think if if you went to a museum um it, yeah. from 2016 till now you will you, you cannot ignore the fact that more and more exhibitions are um about uh politics activism social justice um the new therapeutics empathy um all of these utilitarian um, stances are really at the forefront now. Um, but, but, but also those trends go back uh, decades, I'd say. Um, and of course, these, these things come and go in cycles. Um, you know, art, the utilitarians had all the power 
um, in the early 19th century or the mid 19th century. Um, you know, the, the role of art in society uh, has, has changed dramatically through history and will continue to change. Um, but we have seen a very sharp change in one direction, I think, in the last five or so years. Yeah. What does it do? I mean, have you, so I'm, my, my only exposure to like quote unquote creating art is I, I wrote some very bad fiction and I was a part of, you know, critique groups, workshops in college. And then when I lived in Berlin, I did that a little bit. Um, I never really encountered among other wannabe writers, the idea that like, it's really important that we include certain types of messages in our art. What, what do you think that does to the sort of collaborative process because because most most artists at some point show their work to other artists and, and try to get feedback on it do you mean the collaborative um experience specifically yeah yeah um you know another thing that has i think really um moved to the forefront um along with uh empathy and, and activism and politics in art is the idea of community um, in art. And this is related to empathy too. Um, the, the idea that art is something that we, we all share together and it gives us meaning and it gives us belonging. Um, I think that's always existed, you know, certainly in the past when um, artworks were primarily understood as uh, religious artifacts. Um, that was a communal experience that people had. Yeah. Um, and obviously today, you know, if you go to a concert, you are you're having a private individual experience, but you're having a communal one, too. And that's that's part of the, the sensory experience. Um, so. You know, I don't know what it means for individual artists. I think that's up to every artist to, to decide for themselves whether they are going to work with other people. Um, you know, what they whether they see their audience as um, certain demographics of people. Um, but we're we're re we are really living in a time where community yeah. is. Um, it's one of the best ways ways to promote your art, certainly, if you're an artist. Um, it just seems very a very responsible, caring thing to do. Right. The um, I, I just sense some parallels in, in your essay to what's going on in journalism. I mean, journalism is obviously more intimately connected with, with things like empathy because you're literally trying to tell real-world stories a lot of the time. But I think this idea yeah. that, that stories have to point in a certain direction or have a moral valence and can't can't just be weird or just be uncomfortable or just be complicated. I mean, is that, am I capturing correctly your argument that art should be able to just be those things? Yeah, I think you are. Um, are you maybe referencing that moral clarity idea? Yeah, we talked about that on, on an episode of the podcast. We just, um, I'll just say, this is uh, Wesley Lauer. He's like one of the most celebrated journalists of my generation. He did a viral column for the New York times calling for a turn away from neutral objectivity and toward moral clarity, which basically, you know, it's, it's complicated. People should read it, but yeah, I had um, some feelings about that. <laughs> yeah. It's a strange idea. And I would say that you know, clarity is, is uh, it means clear, means straightforward. Um, it sounds, it sounds like yeah. um, it's a way of stripping away complexity to get to the, the heart of things. And I would just say that I don't think a moral, approach is ever going to be any less complicated than one that um, 
that attempts to be objective. Um, so there's almost a contradiction in terms there of moral clarity. Yep. Um, and yeah, I, I think there there definitely is a, an equivalent happening in um, in the art and book worlds. Um, if if you can say, as this one anthology of poetry does, that your your work has a message that is a um, an, an encapsulated takeaway that the reader can have, um, that is a really good way to promote um, your work. And you know, right. I would I would say that. Um, it is, it's, it's a mistake for, for any artist to, um, to tell themselves that they can ahead of time predict what the response to their work is going to be. Um, I think the, I make this point in the essay, but I think art yeah. encounters are always, to use your words, you know, mysterious and weird. And um, what makes art different from other forms of communication is that they cannot be they cannot be utilized in that way. The, the person who makes it cannot get the output, the exact output that they want. Yeah. It's not a machine. You know, I, I love William Carlos Williams. I think his his uh, metaphor that a, a poem is a machine of words is has been misunderstood by a lot of people. Um, he didn't mean that. It, uh it's yes. not a deterministic machine. Yeah, gotcha. Um, well, we've got some callers in the queue. Remember that if you guys have any questions for Alice, of course, we do want to keep this conversation to her and her essay. Uh, press a button to get in the queue. Let's start with Rosette. Rosette dropped. Also, there, I don't know if they fixed this design issue. There was initially a design issue where the um, the button to unmute yourself looked like the button to drop yourself. I think they fixed that, but just just be very careful. Scott, go ahead, Scott. Scott, are you able to unmute yourself? Come on, Scott. Come on, Scott. I have very little empathy for you. All right. We're going to jump to Chewy. Scott, if you can get back on the queue, you're, uh, you're welcome to. Chewy, what's up? Hey, um, I have been on here enough to understand how to use these things. I think they did, they did, they did like uh, <laughs> change it because the, the hang up button very specifically says hang up. <laughs> um, anyway. Ah, that is useful. Uh, Alice, I'm I'm wondering how much of this just has a difference to do with the change in like funding patterns for art. And I'm thinking of this because I think like um, you talked a lot in, or, or at least a little bit in like the early part of the essay about you know speaking of, like the Hellenistic to the words I don't remember because I'm not that steeped in, in this, right? In which I think there's an issue or there's sort of like a thought about, well, who's funding the art to begin with, right? And I wonder if it's sort of like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the changes in funding funding patterns over centuries, millennia, decades, and now we sort of are at a place where funding patterns are tied to institutions that may um, have like, you know, very particular, you know, either social justice or whatever. I don't, I'm not picking on social justice here. Um, uh, funding patterns and whether it's whether it's much different from or whether it's really unrelated to anything but an economic sort of who's doing the funding kind of thing uh, does that question make sense I mean I, I come from art from like a uh, just a you know like a personal appreciation of of things that I find that I like I have you know a wall that's devoted to to art pieces of sci-fi um, and so I, and so I kind of just wonder: Is this any different than just a, a really like a, just basically a fundamental change in the economics of who's funding the creation of the art? Does that make sense? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, I just begin by saying, you know, I think that um, 
is it all just this one thing? Um, someone could certainly argue that, but my substack is called Notes of an Esthete, not Notes of a Sociologist. So I wouldn't be the person to make that <laughs> argument, but I'd, I absolutely um, recognize what you're um, pointing to there. I think I would say, you know, I already made the point that art has changed, changed so much. Um, you know, our relationship to artworks um, is is really historically conditioned. You know, the way we encounter art is very different today than what it was 200 years ago or 20,000 years ago. Um, but given where we are now, you know, I look at the recent past. To give a, a, a more specific uh, example or answer with poetry, the reason I live in the U.S., is because of poetry. I mean, I moved here to get an MFA, but the reason I did so, I mean, in some ways the MFA um, industry has worked really well for me as an individual. Um, it hasn't always existed and it hasn't always had um, so much prominence and importance in the poetry world. Um, the 20th century for American poetry is just extraordinary. Um, it's really so much happened in the art form um, that there's absolutely no equivalent in the UK or in Australia um, or any other Anglophone country. It's like if you were a composer in, you know, the 18th and 19th centuries, you want to be in Vienna because that's where it's happening. And the US was like that for poetry in the 20th century. You just had successive waves of artistic development and aesthetic innovation. Yeah, but now um, we like, now we dominate now we dominate YouTube. Yeah, we're living in a different time. Just... Yeah, we're living in a different time now, and, and I'd say one of the the big differences between all of those movements that happened in the 20th century um, is that most of those, almost all of those artists, were operating in their own spheres. They weren't directly institutionally supported the way that poets are now. They didn't all have te fancy teaching jobs. They didn't all live off massive MacArthur grants. Mm -hmm. They weren't constantly showered with fellowships. They were very often geographically situated movements in the arts, whether it was you know, the Bay Area Renaissance, the Harlem Renaissance, or um, Black Mountain College, um, the, the language school in Buffalo, New York, these things happened in different places and they were artist created communities. It just doesn't really exist like that now. Um, you know, and any poet who is yeah. shortlisted for a big award um, has a fancy teaching job. Um, that's, that's pretty much right. true across the board. It wasn't like that in the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, I like, um, sorry, Jesse. Oh, yeah, no, true. I, I just do want to um, move on to the next call if you want to make a, a final, okay. Um, Alice, I, I want to follow up after we take more calls about that that issue of people having to teach to make a living. So I think there's there's something interesting here. But for now, let's go to Yasarian. If you can unmute yourself. Am I live? You are live. Awesome. Hey, Jesse. Uh, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is a subject near and dear to my heart. I'm uh, Alice. I'm uh, fascinated to hear you talk, and I've I haven't had a chance to read the entirety of your piece because it's pretty lengthy. But uh, it certainly spoke to me. I was uh, an English major, and I got my MA. So I've written, you know, on T. S. Eliot and Jeffrey Hill. So sort of sort of the more conservative branch of 20th century poetry. But 
it strikes me that that a lot of this is is sort of utilitarianism on steroids, sort of like after the, the the new critics of the early part of the 20th century and then them giving way to, to postmodernism and more specifically, you know, critical theory in which sort of every aesthetic judgment is no longer an aesthetic judgment. Every aesthetic gesture or appreciation is now recontextualized into some complex sociological uh, uh, matrix in which you know, reading poetry yeah. for the pleasure of it is, is just not, it's not done anymore. It has to have some sort of bigger agenda. Well, but which is even ironic. There's a, there's a, a piece written in Harper's a few years ago called the greatness game um, that talks about how sort of like the scope of poetry from the early 20th century to the end of the 20th century really changed. And so you could have someone like Sheslaw Millos writing in the middle part of the century talking about, the you know poetry that as sort of as an exercise of anti-authoritarianism as someone you know who lived both under the nazi and the soviet regimes to you know the end of the the century it's just this very sort of personalized expressive thing anyway i'm just spitting a lot out there but i'm curious to to see if you have any thoughts on that sort of the effect of of critical theory on on the the discipline yeah um this isn't something I've spent a lot of time consciously thinking about and not really writing about, but um, I would say that, I mean, that's true of poetry. I think it's true of the visual arts in general. I think this, this phenomenon that we've touched on of the teaching artist um, has, has really changed, you know, all of the art forms. Um, there are, there are painters who really want those teaching jobs now as well. Um, and there are more and more um, artists that get PhDs. You know, they get an MFA and then they get a PhD. And they very often go to Ivy League universities. Um, these are typically individuals who have always been very good students and uh, are very good at pleasing their elders and their teachers and so yeah they consume all the theory and they do all the theory talk and that's more and more what is taught in MFA programs as well um, in some ways I feel really sorry for the painters you know you go into an MFA program and you have to learn how to write these artist statements and it's like they should, why are you making them do this like their <laughs> language isn't their medium um, and they, you know, I've known loads of painters who feel like they need to like speed read a little bit of Derrida so they can like drop some words into their artist statement and make it sound like they're sophisticated in a specific way. Um, the truth is no one cares about that shit. I mean, no one's thinking about it when they're in the gallery. Um, but do you, do you think that that's a broader lesson here is that like if an artist spends their weekdays in smoky cafes talking to the other weirdos versus if they spend it on the campus of an elite university, that seems like it's going to have pretty predictable effects on their politics and worldview, right? Yeah, it is. And I, I think I've, I've had the experience that poets um, who, for whom getting an MFA can be a really wonderful experience. It was for me. Um, but teaching poetry in the classroom to young people who may or may not want to be there and young people who 
are becoming more and more political and care more and more about identity politics um, means that the poems people choose to teach are the ones that teach well. And the ones that te- the poems that teach well are the ones right. that students can can take, can pick up, and then talk about their own experiences. Um, the cust- the customer is always right, in other words, and the students are the customer. I think that's happening. I I do think that's happening, and I think it it's not only uh, affects the kind of education that um, bachelor's students are getting, but I think poets. Are, are writing the kind of poems increasingly that are these teachable poems. Um, in the past, if you'd asked me, you know, what a teachable poem meant, I would usually say it meant that it was a it was a relatively interesting poem aesthetically. You know, there was lots of different stuff you could say about it and ways that you could derive meaning from it. These days, I, I don't I don't really feel that way anymore. If a poem is highly teachable, it's probably because its message is really straightforward and politically convenient uh you sorry any any follow-up thoughts or should we uh should we move uh, on yeah no just just one quick one and thanks for all that um and i literally could talk about this stuff for hours including the visual art stuff but um it just it just calls to mind that sort of t.s Eliot set up this sort of impossible standard when he wrote poetry is not a turning loose of emotion but an escape from emotion it is not the expression yeah. of personality but an escape from personality. And I think that's an unattainable sort of very cold standard, but we've just done a complete 180 degrees from that. And so everything is a turning loose of emotion and personality and the art is the worst for it. Yeah, I I agree with you. We're living in a really romantic, capital R romantic time. Um, And yeah, the only thing I'd add for your sake is, yeah, I mean, in some ways, Eliot is conservative. In other ways, he's he was really radical. He was really experimental. Um, my my favorite uh, living critic of poet poetry, Marjorie Perloff, brought out a new book recently, and I think like the second chapter in it, she argues um, for as kind of reconceiving Eliot as the first concrete poet of the twentieth century. Um, that he was doing this experimental thing with sound on the page. Um, there's there's still so much for us to to rediscover and new ways of reading old work. Um, for me, that's the way of um, know, keeping my priorities straight. It's just not reading much of the new stuff. <laughs> I prefer my artist dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I share that in common with you. And when my last comment will just be um, the, the poetry that I've been reading and rereading a lot was Christopher Logue's um, sort of transliteration of the Iliad. And it's just, sort of, yeah, it's oh, good. man, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I again, like turning away from the political aspects of it. I just know good poetry and it makes the hair in the back of my neck stand up, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. just, yeah. that's 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 good art. So anyway, thanks for uh, thanks for the, the discussion. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Yusari. All right, next up is Bud. Bud, you are on. Bud, you must unmute yourself so that people can hear you. All right, but I'm going to go back to Chewy in three, two. Okay. Chewy, you're back. Hey, so uh, I guess my question is more of a, uh, <clears throat> this question is um, a how to encounter question. So I, I really agreed with your 
your your sort of statement about the movements within 20th century literature. My favorite art has come from a person I know, who's a gay man of his um, late 60s, or no, excuse me, early 60s, who we met through a romantic tryst years ago, um, and has we've we've maintained a really beautiful relationship. And he sent me the most beautiful poetry I've ever I've ever read, and it's from his experiences and. It's really lovely, and I I have a lot of gratitude for being able to encounter his art in this way, and he, and having him send this to me. So, if you were to um, provide suggestions for how um, others would like to encounter art that is not just on this, you know, I, I do think there's a sociological aspect, as you were saying, um, about like encountering art, and it's hard to to get through that. Like, and so if you want to get outside of this like sociological encounter of the funders. How would you suggest people go about um, finding, you know, that art and poetry and, and all that sort of stuff that connects with them in ways that's not just like that, the, the demand for the aesthetic, or excuse me, the aesthetic, um, the uh, empathetic racket, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, you're asking how to... How do you how... go about finding, yeah, encountering? Yeah, um... I think, yeah, it's different for every person. Um, I, I don't know, honestly. Um, I mean, it helps if you have friends you can talk with. Luck, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, <laughs> I, I really like going to museums with a friend, um, you know, and being, being silent when you're there, but then talking about it afterwards. Um, I think, I think public libraries are, are great. Um, they often have surprisingly large poetry sections or more 20th century and contemporary poetry than one would expect. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm afraid I just, these days I don't um, trust the institutions I used to trust. Um, I don't. You know, I would I would pay attention to who won the Pulitzer Prize, or I would. Um, there are certain you know, poetry presses that I would always pay attention to what they bring out because I I I trust their aesthetics. There's a handful of um, presses like that still. If you're talking about poetry specifically, I I don't think you can go wrong with um, Flood Editions is a is a small poetry press um, that they produce beautiful books by. Uh, very different kinds of uh, poets, but all of whom I think are significant. Um, New Directions, uh, which was founded by James Laughlin in the early 20th century, it published all the most interesting uh, experimental poets, modernist poets writing in, in English and then others in translation. They still are pretty true to their um, their early days in terms of only publishing interesting poets, I'd say. Um, but yeah, otherwise it's like totally on you, I'm afraid. It's like really a private um, thing. But that's but that's fine. But that's but but that's fine. I guess like I um I, I don't I don't know. Like I have sort of questions about if you don't know how to like if you can't recommend how to encounter poetry and art. And you, you know you talked about how like the the art that you must respect and the poetry and whatnot was sort of regional, etc. Um, and it sounds like you encountered that because it was a an agglomeration somewhere in a book you read. But if you don't have suggestions for like how normal people in their everyday lives can can locally 
encounter art in spaces that are local to them that connect with them. Um, I don't know. I have to actually question about how much you're really engaging with the art world. If that's if you're unable to say that, like, well, well but is it isn't it more that this is just so different for for different people and what they're looking for? Yeah, but 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 it has but but I have but I have to question if 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 somebody who is critiquing the aesthetics of the art world is critiquing it away because because they've because they've relied on publications that were national agglomerations of the art and then what they don't do is actually reach out and encounter the art that is in their local sphere but yet they have a respect for the art that was regional in nature in the 20th century what are you telling me about yourself and about your actual interaction with the art world and the poetry world in ways that other people in their normal day to day lives can connect with it i this sounds accusatory and it is a little bit and i because i i think yeah i think it depends what you're what you're seeking in that encounter. Um, to go back to what Jesse and I talked about earlier in this conversation, I think if you're seeking a more communal experience, then you you need to look for it in places around you. Um, if that's not what you're looking for, then um, don't worry about those, those living institutions and whether they um, have stayed true to their values. Like, just read read poets that aren't with us anymore um, and read their essays and read interviews with them and find who they were reading. And um, it happens, you know, I, I really, I think of what my, my dad told me when I was like 15 years old and I asked him uh, how, how I could learn about politics. You know, I wanted to, to know what was happening in the world, but I, I just couldn't make sense of it. And he said to me, just pick up the newspaper every day and read a little bit. And eventually, you'll start to piece things together. You just have to um, start somewhere and listen to yourself. You know, if 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 someone is if a, a an artist is recommended to you and you don't like them, then you know, don't give them too much of your time. Maybe come back yeah, to them no later. Problem. But, yeah, no uh, problem. Exactly. It, right, it, it's a it's a lifelong <sighs> endeavor. If you want to have you know, if you want to yeah. have meaningful aesthetic experiences, um, it's probably something you're going to um, develop over over a lifetime. Agreed. Thank you, Jerry. Um, one thing I want to ask you about, Alice, was just because I've written so much about psychological science and studies purporting to, you know, manipulate people with these cute interventions to feel more X or less Y. You mentioned these studies that um, supposedly show that art can make people more empathetic. Do you mind just, just quickly summarizing what those studies say? Yeah, sure. Um, there's loads of them being done these days, it seems like. Um, I think there's a lot of funding for it. Um, whoever it is in control of. Big, big empathy. Yeah, and I've, I've heard that sort of like um, in, in the humanities, you know, you can only get a job these days if you're a, a scholar of very particular subjects, um, writing in a very particular way. And right. my understanding is there's a similar thing going on in psychology. Like if you, you can't just research whatever you want, um, there, there's a lot of ideology behind oh, absolutely who not. gets funding and what, what sub subjects are in. No, I mean, they're big, they're big funders, like the, not to talk over you, but big funders like yeah. the Templeton Foundation that do pursue very not there's anything wrong with this, but they pursue very specific uh, outlooks of what psychology is for, in a sense. Yeah, it's not 
it's not a field of totally open inquiry, um, it turns out. Yeah, the, um, the studies that I kind of reviewed are all, are all trying to prove the same thing, I think. Um, and they are, they're looking for scientific evidence um, that art encounters, specifically a lot of them, it's around uh, reading fiction, um, can in increase the reader's yeah. capacity for empathy, either in the immediate after fact, after fact of the reading or um, some period of time after. And the a lot of the results are like, pretty tenuous, pretty inconclusive. Some studies have found um, in this very, very narrow way that according to certain tests that to me seem like not very um, uh, complex tests, um, that you know, when subjects do a, a certain quiz beforehand and then they do the thing afterwards um, and then read something in the middle and that they perform slightly differently according to specific metrics. Um, <laughs> and right. they'll, 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 be, they'll be like a 10-point, I'm making this up, but so many fields of psychology, it'll be like, there was a statistically significant difference where they ranked 0.2 points higher on a seven-point empathy scale. And you're just like, what does that mean? Why does that matter? Yeah. I know. And then the way the general public finds out about it is through these puff pieces in the mainstream press that, that <laughs> yeah. shout from the treetops that reading novels makes you a better person, um, which, you know, I, I say in the essay, but anecdotally, I don't think that's true. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, yeah. you know, science, science proving one thing according to its own um, data sets and um, real world material um, effects are, are very different things and you know I I'm maybe maybe some of it's good science I don't really care whether it's good science or not my what I care about is yeah. that it's it's misguided in my opinion um, I I think a good analogy is um, just to just to talk about this a bit more, um, if that's of interest. But I, I, as an as an analogy, I think of love. So say all of yeah, say all of the best. We must quantify love. Neurobiologists, neurologists, cognitive scientists, um, endocrinologists—they all got together and they did their best science and they were able at the end of it all to explain to us you know on the level of the atom the level of the brain spark you know in, in his in historical evolutionary terms what is happening to us when we feel love when we have that experience they could explain to us with science to me this would be useless right. science like I don't, I don't care what they find. I don't think that that science would in any yeah. way make me experience love any more strongly than I do. I don't think it would make my feelings of love any more real or meaningful. Um, yes, they might be able to take that research and develop drugs or technologies, procedures that make some people's lives better. That's great. No, if if that is a secondary effect of their research, then that's great. But personally, I don't think it's the job of science to make the human condition any more explicable to us. Um, but we're living in a time where we want science to 
answer all of life's mysteries. Um, we're living in like a tyranny of science right now. <laughs> a tyranny. See, if I write another book, that should be the name of it. A tyranny of, of social science. I think, um, I think we are, yeah. Can I, can I, um, we could probably about wrap this up if that's okay. I, I want to press you on one thing, which is like, uh, I obviously thought your essay was great. I wouldn't have invited you here if I, if I, if I didn't, but, um, I was, uh, as a, a white Brooklyn male, I'm legally required to like, uh, David Foster Wallace. And I was thinking of, of a character named Don Gately in Infinite Jest, who's, who's an addict. And, um, I find David Foster Wallace's prose when he's talking about someone with mental health problems or addiction or depression to be like really visceral and suffocating. And I just, um, maybe I'm not, not answering the responding legitimately to, to your point, but it just seems like that seems like clearly a good thing that I can enter this character's head and for a few minutes, maybe feel some approximation of what it would like to be an addict, which is something I, I haven't experienced except, uh, except with Twitter. Um, Am I missing the point there? I mean, or maybe is it just you're not really arguing that that isn't one function of art or, or what's wrong with what I'm saying? No, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, okay. <laughs> no, yeah, I don't. Um, I, I don't think in the essay I say anywhere that empathy isn't important or even that art cannot actually be good sometimes at engendering feelings of empathy in the person who encounters it. Right. Um, I, I think that's true. Um, my problem is with the way that institutions today are framing the works that they present to the public um, right. and the way that young people are being taught about art, what they should expect from an art encounter, what they should seek from an art encounter. Um, you know, a lot of the time when we do have those um, empathetic experiences in an artwork, it's not because we share identity markers necessarily with the, the, the person, if it's a person we're relating to. Um, Quite the opposite often. Yeah, it's for much stranger reasons. Um, and I think that experience can be powerful. Um, there was someone who left a comment on my essay a few days ago that I really appreciated. Um, this person is from Brazil and they, they said that where they live, you know, rap music has been um, really important for young men who live in the favelas um, for giving them a sense of community and that um, the indigenous people where they live use, use art for healing purposes. Um, I think all of that's wonderful. I mean, I, I would never suggest that we need to constrain our expectations for what artworks can do. I think we need to expand them. I just think that talking about empathy to the extent we have been is actually foreclosing the possibility of um, an individual to have a really um, complicated and various and strange um, and therefore affecting, you know, a meaningful encounter with an artwork. That makes sense. I, I also wonder if there's like a sort of pragmatic or method side to this where like 
I just think it probably creates shittier art. The more the more artists go into something, be like, I'm trying to engender empathy here. Like I, I imagine David Foster Wallace's motivations for writing the characters he wrote in Infinite Jest was a lot more complicated than that. And I think you'll probably get stuff that's a lot more stilted and stunted if you're like, I'm going to be the the empathy raiser. Yeah, and the I think if if one sets out with that approach, then they're necessarily going to curtail some of the possibilities of their work um, and it's going to have a knock-on effect to the the aesthetics um, so it just depends what the artist is setting out to do I just worry that we're we're living in a time where there is a lot of pressure on artists to um, make their work seem socially responsible um, in the first place um, I think well, the reason that people still read Wallace is is for the reason you give that he he created these characters that feel very real and you can access their experience in in ways that you can't even with a friend who you know very well or even their experiences might um, elucidate ones that you have in your own life um, that are confusing to you. Um, but I would also add that you know Wallace is um, is celebrated as a as a very exciting writer on the level of the sentence, you yeah, know? Um, and that his his aesthetics are really important uh, for his um, reputation. I think if you took away his formal um, innovations um, and you just had these characters you could empathize with, um, his his work probably wouldn't have lasted as long actually. So it's never just one thing. I don't think you can yeah. really ignore the aesthetics and say that a, an artwork is important. Um, that's my opinion. Um, but I think when we talk about empathy, the same way if we talk about social justice, if that's the only way we're responding to artworks, um, and if that's all that the artworks are doing successfully, my understanding of the history of art is that those works are not going to survive. Yeah. It's also interesting. I'll, I'll just wrap up with this um, unless anyone has, has more questions, but I'm, I'm, I'm producing a podcast episode about um, basically an, an unpublished manuscript and why it's unpublished. I'll, I'll leave it at that, but it's about uh, black college students on a very preppy campus. And I absolutely felt like I was sort of inside these characters heads in a compelling way. And, but one of the interesting things is like the reason it worked is because the characters often shot themselves in the foot or sometimes embraced negative stereotypes against them. And what's interesting to me is like you mm -hmm. could say, is that raising empathy or or the fact that they're presented in this negative but more, you know, real world light? Is that is that it's like empathy itself just seems like sort of a slippery fish because the same kind of writing could be construed as promoting empathy or, or detracting from it, I feel like. Yeah. What is this? What is this work? How do you? I will. Uh, <laughs> there's a podcast episode coming up, and I need to. I'll, I'll tell you about it offline. There'll be more info public soon. Okay. Yeah, it sounds interesting. <laughs> Not to I mean, be mysterious. Think, yeah, I I don't read a lot of contemporary fiction, um, in part because, from what I can tell, um, it's just all about like relationships. And <laughs> I'm just not interested in that. Um, yeah. uh, but you know, uh, the more the more human the characters are, the and I don't think this means that one has to write in a in a more kind of classic Dickensian, you know, third person way. Um, I think 
a writer like uh, Rachel Cusk, who everyone loves these days for good reason. You know, she's writing in what doesn't seem like an especially experimental form. The novels are super readable, this recent trilogy. Um, and yet she's doing something uh, really new formally. Um, I think you can you can access subjectivity in those novels in a way that um, she I think is new for her and um, and the characters are are real they're they're complicated um, so yeah. so yeah I wish more fiction was like that. <laughs> <laughs> um. This is Yasar, and if we could keep this relatively short for a final question, this is my fault for starting late. I, I actually need to be um, head somewhere at the top of the hour, but uh, yeah, go ahead if you, if you can unmute yourself. Yeah, just real quick, following up, I, I think this ties interestingly into the the other issue that that you have you and Katie I think have touched on Jesse, which is the the policing around young adult fiction, and I think increasingly adult fiction in which it's this weird situation where the empathy is supposed to lie fully within the reader and not within the author, right? The author is not supposed to stretch his or her emotional or moral imagination to, to take on people from other, you know, groups. And it's just such, I mean, you don't get things like, you know, just thinking off the top of my head, Kazuo Ishiguro, The Remains of the Day, right? You don't get works like that if that's how mm -hmm. the, if that's the rule of the art. So I, you know, it's, it's, we expect empathy, but it, it only goes, it's only supposed to be exercised by the reader. The reader is supposed to read books by the people of the right demographics and then empathize with them. It's really corrosive, and I, I've I've heard from multiple writers who are not white, who have had white editors who are usually from elite institutions. Uh, white editors and agents basically say that you know you're supposed to write about being oppressed, and it turns out people are complicated. Not every single person of color on the planet feels oppressed or wants to write about being oppressed. I, I had this one um, Indian kid write in who, who's a uh, uh, you know young want to be published author basically saying like, I'm interested in ancient Egypt. I want to write young adult fiction about ancient Egypt, but he just, he's Indian. So he's supposed to write about being Indian. It's, it's very, um, I don't know, man. It's, it's very weird. Uh, I take it. You, you agree, Alice? Yeah. And I would just add that, you know, I'm, I'm writing as a, as an artist. I'm not writing as a cultural commentator. Um, I, I think that our way, out of all of this, if we're diagnosing a problem, is um, the artists themselves need to be willing to do what was easier to do in the 20th century, um, to exist without these institutions propping them up. Um, you know, the desire for a middle class, a comfortable middle class life, for whatever reasons, they're, they're opaque to me, but they've really taken hold of the artists of today. Um, no one wants to just be on their own and struggle and get by and be poor. And um, that's a shame. And artists need to be willing to do that again. Um, and not write the books that agents want them to write, not write the books that are like the ones winning awards. Um, it's easy for me to say as a poet, you know, poets never sell millions of books. They're never on, unless you're Amanda Gorman, you're never going to be on the cover of magazines. Um, you're actually hoping for people to read you when you're dead as much as when you're alive. But um, I think I think fiction writers and, and you know, young adult <laughs> fiction writers need to be willing to do this too. They need to have some integrity about their aesthetic and their storytelling um, and 
uh, start existing outside of these institutions because the people running them have lost their way. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Saren. I appreciate the question. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks. Um, so, Alice, before uh, I do my wrap-up spiel, anything else you want to add or anything you else want to plug? I, I highly recommend your Substack. It's alicegriven.substack.com, right? It is, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got a, I've got a full-time job as a freelancer, and I'm, I'm not. I don't want to charge anyone to read this prose, so um, I'm not doing the weekly Substack thing. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I think I'm probably going to publish essays every. Uh, two or three months. Um, yeah, well, that's the nice thing about signing up to a mailing list. You will only get stuff when there's new stuff to read. Right, yeah. I have I have some stuff coming up in the new year um, on, uh, I think my next essay is going to be on the aesthete as Epicurean. Um, I like the figure of the Epicurean who's been sort of maligned um, ever, ever since Christianity. <laughs> Um, I think there's some interesting likenesses there. Um, I'm going to be writing about the, the history of the art for art's sake concept in um, 19th century France. Um, and uh, I'm going to be writing about Adrienne Rich, who is a who's an important feminist poet and activist who in some ways I think is responsible for um, a lot of the mess we're in. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited to read this. Come. It's just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking my time with it. Um, and then along the line, I'm hoping to, you know, maybe start self-publishing my poetry in, in book form. So, um, but looking for readers of prose first, of my prose. This is very embarrassing, but I actually had not yet subscribed. I was not practicing what I preached, but I just subscribed, and I hope everyone listening does the same thing. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. It's um it's fun to talk about. It's fun to talk with people in different worlds. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's strange. Well, it's not strange, but so many of the culture war, um, uh, the things that are happening, there's a lot of overlap in the way people are behaving and the way institutions are changing. Every Everything, almost everything you said, you know, setting aside obvious superficial differences is going on in journalism and is going on in other areas of academia. I mean, you know, you'll see the national whatever association of mathemat mathematicians or geologists put out statements about how they need to be much more about social justice. And that's obviously true that we, we should hope people do good versus bad things with knowledge in, in pragmatic areas, but just the, um, the obsession that everyone has to be on exactly the same page about this stuff. And you can't just be a mathematician or just be a geologist or just be an artist, I think is um, not, not great for a liberal society. Yeah, we need we need some more bravery, I think, and um, and I don't know what's going to happen to the universities. I mean, they just they exist for very different reasons now than they did for at least the last 150 years. Um, yeah. So poetry needs to break free from the university for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you again, Alice. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jesse. Bye. Bye. Well, thank you guys uh, for listening. Uh, I'm going to give the same closing spiel I always give, which is that all of us who are hosts on this platform are sort of starting fresh in terms of, you know, we need to raise awareness. If you find my stuff useful, please spread the word. Please follow me. See, please send me suggestions for guests. Uh, but I really appreciate you guys, guys all joining. And you will hear more from me soon. Thank you and have a good Monday night.